Hey, this is Jeff. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and join us at the table as we talk to another great leader about faith, church, and leadership. Welcome to the Leadership Trip. Rob, I want to welcome you, my dear friend, to the very first rebranded episode of the Leadership Drip podcast. I like the fact that you're still calling me a friend. <laughs> well, it's been a long summer, but uh, we survived the quarantine summer. But uh, for those of you tuning in, we have um, been known as the Collective Scope podcast, but through some discussion, we decided to rebrand. This is the first official episode under that title, and we are so glad to welcome our first guest to the rebranded podcast, Chris Brown. And there's lots of Chris Browns out there, so lots. we need to clarify which Chris Brown this is. He is a pastor, a speaker, and I love this part, a church leadership expert, and that's why we're talking to him today. Um, he's previously worked for the Ramsey Group, Elevation Church, and Potential Church, and he says he left behind city life for the hills of Columbia, Tennessee. And Chris, I want to know why Columbia, Tennessee? <laughs> well, honored to be on the show, guys. Thanks so much for the invite. Uh, you know what? Just needed some more space. You know, I'm uh, around a lot of crowds and a lot of people, which I love and enjoy, but it's just nice to have a little bit of space. And for me, as you know, I'm an ex-Ramsey guy, so uh, I still got Ramsey in my blood and still good friends with Dave and uh, the organization. So for me, it's a lot of space on a budget. And so if you're going to do that, you've got to go out in the country to do it. So for me, more space on a budget. And it's funny that my Miami friends now, they'll see a post of mine and be like, I don't even know who you are anymore. <laughs> I went from like frosted tips and flowery shirts and white jeans to true religion, white jeans to, to now I'm just out scooping poop in the corral. So it's a totally different world. That's awesome. Hey, I, I kind of get the same vibe because we moved here two years ago from LA to Tennessee. So I understand exactly where you're coming from, man, but, but that's awesome. Yeah. 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 So what I've learned, Chris, is they call them halfbacks. Um, they're people who have either moved to Florida and rather than moving all the way back up North, they move halfway to Tennessee. Yeah. And so like, there's a huge influx of people settling into the state and, and finding what you found lots of land and no state income tax and great things like that. So <laughs> yep. Come on, can I get an amen? Yeah, <laughs> now, listen, I love it. So I love it. Hey, so, um, you've obviously got an incredible sort of leadership resume, which is, which is great. You've had a lot of leadership in a lot of spaces. Uh, again, we mentioned the radio with um, radio host with uh, Dave Ramsey and that group, uh, campus pastor, elevation, executive pastor. Um, and now you're kind of itinerating and speaking on, on different leadership issues. Um, and, uh, and all of these, you can unique roles. What has sort of been the, um, what's been the common thread for you? What, what's something that you've seen, throughout each one of these uh, leadership roles? It's been a common theme. Well, I mean, there are definitely different roles there. You know, there's a totally different capacity between an executive pastor, a campus pastor, um, and then like a CFO at one point, right. and, um, and then a radio host and uh, traveling, what we call a Ramsey personality, totally different roles. But I think for me, the common thread would be, regardless of your environment, if, if you're listening in right now, and none of those are environments that you're in, the key environment, the key concept and principle for me is what is my highest and best use of Chris Brown? What, what is the, within the sandbox that I've been given, within the parameters of my job description, within the expectations that I've been given by my supervisor, what is the highest and best use of Chris Brown? And so to, to give you kind of an example of that, an illustration of that is that 
I believe it's Steve Adams or Scott Adams. I forget. He's the uh, he's the cartoonist for Dilbert. The back in the day when we used to actually read comics. Yeah. But uh, yeah. he's he's known for saying, "Hey, I'm a, I'm a comedian. I'm kind of funny, but I'm not the funniest. But I can draw. But I'm actually not like the best drawer, the best artist. But what I am is the best." I can mix comedy and mix drawing together better than anybody can. And I've got this business acumen so I can actually write comics about business environments. And so what he did is he took this intersection of things he's good at and said, I can be the best in the world at this. And so what I've tried to do wherever I'm at, whatever I'm doing, I'm trying to be the best I can be. Like for right now, I'm a traveling speaker. I am not Pastor Stephen Furtick. I mean, he is absolutely phenomenal. Within his personality, he rocks it. I'm not a Tim Keller within that kind of a personality. These guys are like those ones that are like best in 100 years, you know, within yeah, their yeah. personality. I can't be that. However, what I can, I'm really, really good at connecting with an audience. I'm really, really good with genuinely uh, researching beforehand of going into an environment of a church and saying, okay, I understand what series they're in. I understand what season they're in. I understand. I can research the last six months. I can ask their pastor about uh, key terminology that I can, I can go in there and actually sound like I'm on staff, not a, but I can do that. That's something in my control. I can't control my lid on my talent versus a, a talent of somebody that's a once a century kind of speaker. Uh, when it comes to being a radio host, I was a radio host right next to Dave Ramsey, who's one of the best radio hosts ever. And uh, I can't be Dave Ramsey, but what can I do? Well, I can come across very empathetic. I can come across very pastoral. I can have a very pastoral tone. I can be a great listener. I can hold space with people. Uh, so you know, I try to just mix that, you know, and try to just be the best I can. Executive pastor. There's executive pastors out there that are super good at numbers and super good at finance. I'm not. So I surround myself with really good bookkeepers, really good accountants, really good accounting firms. I'm really good on the people side. I'm really good at staff culture. I'm really good at morale. And so you just got to be the best you. One of the best compliments I've ever received was from Troy Grambling uh, down at Potential Church. And we were going around the room in our executive meeting. And he said he was calling out something specific in each and every one of us. And he said, Chris, the biggest thing, the biggest value you bring to this team is you. Like you just be you. Like you, and I would just say anyone listening in, don't have so much focus on the what and your role and how have more focus on the who's you are, you are, you know, the connection with Christ and the, the amount of value you bring and just being you, if you're bringing integrity, you're bringing character, you're bringing work ethic, you're bringing diligence, you're bringing discipline, you're making everyone else better around you. Those are the things you can control. So even if you feel like you've got a mid grade talent, you can bring it way more than anyone else brings it and you can control that. So that's kind of the common thread wherever I've been is, uh, just be the best Chris Brown I can be in whatever sandbox I've been given. And I love that you say that the, the, the highest, best use of who I am is something I say all the time. Uh, and that's just something I think I picked up on the culture when I was at Saddleback on staff there. But, but I think this idea that you're talking about being the highest, best use of you, where you are with what you have, right? I think that's critical conversation for leaders of this generation, because not being too stereotypical, but the sort of the assumptive stereotypical reality is that a life of significance is only one that has lived in some kind of grandiose spotlight uh, with a lot of likes and a lot of shares mm-hmm. and a lot of whatever, right? So, so helping young leaders unpack that myth that in order to be significant, you have to be popular or well-known 
is critical for us in, in, in this leadership culture that we're in right now, because the impact comes when you're honest and integrous with who you are and who God's created you to be. Yeah. Does that make sense? So yeah. I love the fact that you're addressing this right off the bat I, as a leadership conversation for, for Gen Z yeah. for the next. For the I, I wrote down the word authenticity, Chris. Yeah. How, how did you, and this is really my question, because as a young leader, I think I struggled with it and I want to help other young leaders get there. How did you get to a place of such authenticity of being okay with who Chris Brown was? Yeah. And I think that's the key component of like, you're, you know, there's a humility in like, okay, uh, am I really prepared for this role? And I think, you know, those that are listening to podcasts are probably the overachievers, the ones that are really trying to, 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 to learn and trying to grow. And so if you're listening to this right now, you're probably one of those people that you're probably going to be put in scenarios where you're not really ready. It's, it's something that's stretching for you. And so I think if you go into those roles humble and you're always seeking uh, advice and always seeking, you know, you can, you can keep that, you know, keep that mindset for sure. The, the highest and best used terminology, and I've robbed that a little bit from the real estate business. When you're thinking about a parcel on a corner, you're like, what's the highest, best use to put a duplex there? Uh, I don't know. Putting a CVS there? Well, now we're talking. So it's the highest and best use is what you're, what you're kind of looking for. And you just got to ask yourself, what, and when highest, best use, I'm not talking about the highest and best use for you. I'm talking about the highest and best use for the organization. How can I bring as much value as possible? On the Miami Heat back in the day, there was a three-point shooter named James Jones. And he, his number one job is when he gets in there, he better hit two or three threes. And as soon as the defense knows that he's hot and they get on him, well, he didn't really have the game to actually create and create points. But he went in there for his six, you know, his six or nine points, his two or three three-pointers and took him out. He played four minutes a game. And boom, they'd go on a 9-0 run and pull him out. He knew his role. That's what he was. So he practiced three-pointers all day long. And I think you just got to know your lane. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, that's that's challenging because um, I think – and you've kind of worked with some leaders who who own the lane, uh, a Stephen Furtick, a Troy Grambling, a, a Dave, Dave Ramsey. Ramsey. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah. they, 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 they consume their, their lane. I mean, gonna, there's nobody else in their lane. Um, how did you – in your own leadership, in your own sort of self-awareness, operate as a leader under those leaders? Well, I think, you know, one, you got to be aware with, with that big of personality, uh, there's going to, they have a, they have demons and they have devils at a whole other level. You've heard that before. You've got devils at another whole level. They've got things that they're dealing with that I don't have to deal with. And they've got a platform that comes with devils and comes with demons and comes with like, just this uh, stress and pressure. And so I feel like if you're under a great leadership like that, you've got to have a grace for what they're experiencing that you are not experiencing. You have no idea the pressure that comes with leading an organization that big. You have no idea what comes with that many, you being living under a microscope and that. So you think you're gonna have grace for a leader like that because at the end of the day, they're human. And they're actually not even designed to handle that much pressure. And so the amount of they're having to learn on the fly, just like you're trying to learn on the fly. They're, they've never been with that kind of a platform before. And those guys are always up and to the right. They're always hockey stick growth. So they're always experiencing something they've never experienced before and, and guys and gals. And so I think having a grace for their, what they struggle with, maybe it happens to be pride. Well, have some grace for that. Of course, you're going to have pride. You got a microphone in your face. You got lights in your face. You've got people wanting to hear from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're going to struggle. That's going to be your number one thing is going to be pride. 
Now, somebody who um, maybe doesn't get a lot of limelight, maybe their number one struggle is going to be gluttony or it's going to be alcohol or it's going to be something else, right? right. It, but theirs is going to probably be pride. So have a little bit of grace for that. Another thing is just humility, you know, like especially for if we've got some younger folks that are listening in right now, just because you delivered one good talk, don't think you can deliver one good talk every seven days. Preach. That a preach. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> it's like, I, hey, I, listen, I can you tell you, Chris. You probably said talk for four stinking months. Of course it's going to be good. Yeah. That's right. I crushed my first one and fell flat on my face my second one. It was, it was <laughs> like the Lord humbled me smack dab. Yeah. I mean, I think you just got to have some humility and you got to say, hey, listen, you have you've worked hard. for Like Pastor Furtick was amazing at age 26. However, what people don't know is he spoke like three times a week since he was 16. So he had like 10 years. He had like probably 150, 200 talks under his belt before he launched a church. You know, so I think, you know, you got to just know, have some humility. You have not paid the price that they've paid. So again, the question goes back when you're under those kind of leaders. So I'm just trying to answer from that, that perspective. Another thing is like preparation. Um, You're, you're going to get the nod at some point. You're going to get the nod on something. You're going to get the nod to lead something, some kind of initiative. And, And listen, you might only get one because it's a larger organization. There's lots of thoroughbreds in the stall. And you're going to get that nod that one day. And it may only come like once a quarter. It may only come once a year, maybe every three years. Make sure you're prepared in season and out of season. It could be a devotional. Uh, It could be uh, leading some kind of small three-week initiative. It could be, I don't know what it is, but just make sure you're always staying sharp. You're always prepared. And and, and this is something, some advice. This is kind of off the the topic a little bit, but kind of not. I get asked a lot, hey, Chris, how you, you kind of climbed the ranks in several organizations and you did it fast. What, what worked for you? How did you get promoted? That's always a question from, you know, a lot of millennials ask that, you know, it's a microwave culture, you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, so, and I would just say, here's, here's quick advice for you. Um, one, and, and, and it's number two and number three, you can't do without number one. So number one's important. Crush your job description. Like just crush whatever the expectations are for your job description, the thing that you were hired for, the thing that you were brought on for, crush it, exceed expectations. Number two is care what your leader cares about. Now, this doesn't mean if you're, if you're, you know, your supervisor loves the Detroit Pistons, that you have to love the Detroit Pistons. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like if right now they're in a season where like community is more important than evangelism or just in a season where discipleship is more important than community or we're all about outreach. Like for that season, man, be all in about outreach. I mean, care about what they care about, like care about the thing that they're going after. And so really, really care about that. And the last one is solve the biggest problems. Solve the biggest problems. Do it respectfully. Do it tactfully. Do it in a way where you're staying in your lane, staying humble, but you're offering suggestions on how to, within your lane, and not trying to step on toes, but you are trying to solve the biggest problems. And I think if you do that, all under the umbrella of being trustworthy. I've been asked before, hey, Chris, what's in the middle of your flywheel? What's the biggest thing you provide for people? I say that in the middle of my flywheel, it's not a skill. It's not speaking. It's not writing. I'm not even, I'm like average at all those things. At the middle of my flywheel is trust. Like with the entire church world, whether it be on social media, whether it be at a church, maybe it be an organization that I go speak at, people know and they think of Chris Brown, I can trust that guy. That's the middle of my flywheel. You've got to ask yourself, you got to know within my organization, what is the middle of my flywheel? What's the thing that really works? What are people really attracted to about me? Yeah, so I think, you know, those are the things that come to my mind when, and on how do you get promoted and under great leadership. 
Yeah, no, those are those are good thoughts, and and I was scribbling notes as fast as I, I can. <laughs> like, <laughs> can we just take like a moment and <laughs> reflect on the goodness of the Lord? <laughs> you know the, the the knowledge that's being dropped right yeah, now. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. Truth bombs, yeah, truth bombs all over. I mean, I, it's it, it shows the humility shows Chris and in, in, in who you are and the authenticity and and we're we're sort of using some buzzwords and leadership language. Um, and leading where you've led, you'd have to have those things. Like if you're, if you're not trustworthy, you're probably not going to stay in the organizations you've stayed in. Um, if you're not for that leader, you're not going to stay with those leaders. And that's just evident. And I think not in just large scale organizations, I think in any organization that you're a part of, if you're not trustworthy, you probably shouldn't stay there. And whether you leave on the exit or they, they ask you to exit, right. I think that's a significant point. And especially for young leaders, um, I think your third point solved the biggest problem. I think a lot of times in, in crush your job description, they want to solve somebody else's problem and not solve the problem that they were given to solve. Yes. So, so speak to that from yeah. your experience. How do you not, not get so big for your britches as they would say in the South in Tennessee here mm-hmm. and, and just stay focused on the problems that you're asked to solve without trying to solve too much. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of times we subconsciously, and I'm talking about all levels of the organization, every kind of, every, every uh, number on the Enneagram, okay? Every type of person. So, type so what of- are you? <laughs> what, What's what your Enneagram, you Chris? <laughs> I'm a three. You're a three? Yes. So I'm a two, Rob's a seven. seven. So we got that out of the way. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. I, so- I, I really believe that, uh, you know, that, we have a, whenever you have something coming up, like there's something on your job description you don't like, you don't say, I don't like that. I'm not going to do it. What you do is you find some other pet projects that you can do that keep you distracted. Subconsciously, that's what you do. So for instance, there's these little minor conflicts. Let's just say that you're maybe like a hospitality director at a church or something. And uh, let's say that maybe the the offering collections or something like that need to be refined and there needs to be a little bit more uh, protocol for the, I don't just dreaming something up, yeah. but you dive into that deep because you know, there's this thing that takes heavy lifting over here off to the side. So in your mind, you're kind of tricking yourself into thinking I'm winning within my job description. No, you're overwinning in one area and you're not addressing another area. I think when you say crushing your job description, that means if the lead, your leader were to sit down and look at your job description, like what the heck, this person is way overqualified for this. They are absolutely crushing it. And I think in church world, especially in mid-level churches, size churches, and bigger churches, crushing your job description doesn't mean that you crushed your job description. Really crushing it means that your job description was crushed through people. Yeah. Like you had volunteers because we're talking about Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, equipping the saints for acts of service. If you actually were the one who crushed your job description, you actually didn't crush your job description. Yeah. So to think that like, okay, I've got all my stuff, all my ducks in a row. I have nothing to do within my lane. I need to go solve someone else's problems <laughs> is either you're just disillusioned or, um, you know, maybe a little prideful. Yeah. And especially in, in the, in the church world, I mean, since that's part of the conversation that, that we want to have, I mean, with leadership and especially leadership in church, this whole idea of empowerment to, to volunteers is, and as a consultant, you know, and, and of the, the minimal consulting work that I've done with other churches, you know, this is one of the biggest areas of concern and question that church leaders have. 
how do we get people to engage, right? But I don't know. My opinion is I'm not sure that that's the right question to ask. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how to crush your job description through others, right? Mm-hmm. How, what questions do you hear and how, and do you think those are the right questions that, that are being asked? I mean, one of the questions I hear all the time, Hey, how do you get, how do you ask people to join your ministry? How do you ask people to serve? I'm like, er, no, come on, back it up. You're never asking somebody to do something. You're inviting them to an opportunity. Thank you. It's a big, huge shift. It's like, no, listen, you've been in ministry for two years, three years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever it is. If you go back to the beginning, when you were asked the first time, you were so flattered. You were so thankful. You're like, yes. And when you do something yourself, you're robbing somebody of that opportunity. And so I think at the, at the end of the day, every human being on this planet, all 7 billion plus of them, have a burning desire inside of their hearts, inside of their minds, inside their soul for two things. That seems really simplistic, grossly oversimplified, but it does. It comes down to two things. This is Christians, non-Christians, spiritually minded, not spiritually minded, two things. People are craving purpose and community purpose and no matter what it is whether it is uh they're getting all into some mlm or they're getting into uh essential oils or they're getting into tractor poles they want some kind of community but everyone wants purpose too they really do and so if you can get somebody involved in ministry and invite them to an opportunity where they can have community on the team while they are generating purpose you have just literally hit them right in the middle of their of their fulfillment. If you don't, if you don't ask them, you don't invite them to that opportunity, they're going to find it. They're going to find it at Pee Wee football. Uh, they're going to find it in a bowling league. They're going to find it somewhere and it needs to be in the kingdom of God. So you are robbing somebody of a blessing. If you don't ask them, if you don't invite them to the opportunity to serve with you. Yeah. And that's, that's just that's the true. first step, right? I mean, good leadership is not only learning to do the invitation pieces. I am 1000% with you tracking with you. Cause I say the exact same thing almost verbatim when a leader or a pastor asks me, okay, how do I get volunteers to sign up for? Well, that's the wrong approach, right? So now that we've addressed the first, the first hurdle, changing the, the mindset and the mentality of it's not about asking, it's about inviting people to go on the journey with you. Good leadership then takes other steps, right? Mm-hmm. Those other steps are empowerment and preparation so that those volunteers, whatever your terminology is, can be successful in what they do, right? So that's the sustainability piece. So kind of talk to that just a little bit about how to prepare the way for your volunteers to engage, not just invite them to engage. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, like the example that comes to my mind is um, my wife and I have a <laughs> have this saying that we say, never get goldfish alone. And uh, the point is, is we go back to a preschool director saying, hey, what did you do this afternoon? I had to go to Target and I had to go get, I had to go get goldfish. And like, what? Like you went and got goldfish? Like, like you did? Like, and this is somebody who was a preschool director over 700 preschoolers. And so had three or four people on staff and then had 200 volunteers. And like, she went to go get goldfish. And, and I just asked the question, like, why did you not bring somebody with you what you're saying and equip them and train them and pour into them, use the task to build people. Don't use people to do a task. It's a big difference. So you're using the task of goldfish as, as dumb as that is, as simple as that is, which now would be an Amazon example, because we'd probably order that on Amazon. But back in the day when you actually got in your car and went to a store uh, without a mask on, 
you went and you went and got goldfish. Well, um, you know, here's the, here's the thing, you know, go with a few people and create community and purpose on your way there and on your way back. So it's not an obligation. The thing is, is if you've got community without purpose, you have a distraction. Okay, so that's like the church softball without any kind of devotions, without any kind of prayer. It's a distraction. You're literally sitting around like hitting this white thing all over the thing for two hours. You go home sweaty. You work with your kids. It's a, it's a distraction. There's no, there's no purpose to it. Now, if you have the purpose without the community, what you now have is an obligation. Not a distraction. When you have an obligation. You have that one person out in the parking lot who's out there by themselves serving for two or three weeks with no community. They're just out there roasting. After the second or third week, it turns into an obligation, and that's why they quit after three weeks. Is because you need to have both, not one or one or the other. You've got to have purpose and community. Yeah, that's good. It's good. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get all fired up about this stuff because I think you know when we talk about young young adults engaging mm-hmm. or not engaging in church, in our conversations, in our own experiences, what we find is it's not that leaders don't want young adults to engage in their church. It's just that they don't know how to give them the purpose and the community they need to stay to stay engaged in their church. And so it's, it's really helping leaders, church pastors, whatever, understand that, you know, this, this community and purpose piece that they're after is, is the glue that holds everything together. And I love the way you described it, the, um, the obligation versus the distraction. I think, that's, yeah. I think that's brilliant. No, and I, and I think you're right on the money. Chris was saying they're going to find it somewhere. And then what happens is pastors or leaders, we get mad because they're not in church. Right. Yep. We're like upset because they have this community and purpose at some other event. And it may be a good thing because I think especially millennials and Gen Z are looking for something good to do. Um, they're looking for a cause. They're looking for something to give their life to. Mm-hmm. And when we don't foster that in the house of God and the kingdom of God, they are going to go somewhere else to find it. And, yeah. and they are, and, and in truth, they are. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we're having these discussions because we're trying to get that stopgap in place of, of retaining young adults in the church and even capturing them and, and for the kingdom of God for purpose and for the community um, elements. And so I think that's a critical component. Um, so obviously we're, let's shift gears a little bit. We're in a, an odd season in the world. I mean, you mentioned that we're, we're more likely to order from prime than go to target. Um, we're in a season of change in the church. Um, most of us have been doing church online or church in, in other settings and change is always happening around us. And I'm sure with your um, speaking opportunities and things, you've had to shift and pivot in some ways. Um, as a leader, how do we be open to change um, either when it's forced upon us or just when it's the, the, on the horizon and we know we need to make it? Well, I think, you know, Let's take, for instance, let's say that you're in an organization and uh, we'll go outside the church for this one and just say it's an organization where you had a leader step in and one leader step out. So it's a change in personnel. Maybe you have a change in a leadership. Um, I feel like that one particular example, one that stood out to me is I've seen that done poorly and I've seen that done done well. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's done well, I think it's when you honor the past. So you have a chance at the time, if you're the new guy or the new gal stepping in and you're replacing somebody else, or if you're on a team and you're reporting to the new leader what things were like before, you have a chance. You have a choice where right then at that moment, you can honor the past or you can vilify the past. And I would just like stop everyone in their tracks right now and ask you, 
what are the benefits to vilifying the past? Mm. There is, there's nothing there. There's, it will get back to them. It will crush their feelings. It is, it's no good to do that. Honor the past regardless. And if you have nothing good to say, just don't say anything. But man, that, that dishonoring the past, oh man, this is so much better. <laughs> uh, just don't do that. I, I just, I, I've seen that too many times. I think if you're the new leader coming in and you're the one bringing a lot of change, do not overpromise. And then you, what you will do is you will underdeliver. You are overzealous. You're jacked up on Jesus yeah. juice. You're excited. You're ready to rock and you will overpromise. Just don't overpromise. Just, just like I, I, I promised, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to be here for you guys. And then when you deliver, it's like, whoa, this is so cool. And you can always be exceeding expectations, but man, do not come in and say, oh, you won't say this, but you're going to say it with your, with your demeanor is I'm the best thing since sliced bread and just don't do it. (laughs) Um, I think also when it comes to, you know, change with personnel and stuff, it would, you know, let's say that you really like the last leader and uh, you know, you don't really care for the new one. The chemistry might not be as good, but it was never about the leader. Okay. Hopefully you're in a crusade, whatever you're doing, whatever you're listening, you're in a crusade for the cause and for the purpose, not necessarily for the supervisor. So I, I think that's, that's one thing. And now this, if the person that you're now following is just, there's no chemistry and it's awful. I, 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 one thing that's been abused, especially in the church world, this whole idea of loyalty, this extreme loyalty, like how dare you ever leave. Right. And I, I just think, you know, when I, when I left Dave uh, Ramsey's um, I resigned from there kind of unexpectedly. We are still really good friends. I'm good friends with the whole organization. Same thing with uh, pastor Furtick and elevation, good friends with our whole entire team. There is a way you can leave. Well, hello. Right. Um, yeah. But you just have to realize, and all my leaders have just said, Hey, listen, we can both still get to heaven and you don't have to get your paychecks from this place. <laughs> like, like, it's like, come on, like whoever thought we were going to live, you know, go somewhere, you know, and work at the same place for 20 or 30 years. It's so rare. Like your expectations needs to be right. So when you're thinking about changes, that's when I'm like personnel, you know, to answer your question there, but like changes in the environment. And right now, I mean, the things that I would say to people is just focus on what you can control, not on what you can't. I mean, what can you do right now? One of the things I'm asking the staff that I'm working with right now is, what are all those things that you said I don't have time for when we were meeting, you know, as a church that like, like we regularly do, what are all that, like organizing that closet or reaching out to every single volunteer and calling out something specific in them or uh, dropping by uh, wishing them happy birthday with a packet in their mail or all those things that you said, Ooh, I would do, man, if I had time, if I have time, you do have time now. So just do what you couldn't do before. Um, you know, dealing with, uh, I'm thinking about something else, like uh, right now, like lead pastors, for instance, the pressure that they're under. Right. Yeah. Um, how do you navigate that kind of change? Like, I don't even know how to lead in this. I think on an emotional scale, what I would say is, you know, have, have accurate expectations. Do you really think that 100% of the human beings that are under your sphere of influence would all believe the same way about anything? So like when 50% think one way, and 50% think the other way. Like, did you think anything different? Like, don't have expectations that your whole entire congregation was all going to see this the same way. So I think, I think having accurate expectations help, helps you emotionally. Like, oh, I never, I shouldn't have expected that anyway. That's not, that's a false expectation. Um, so that, that would, that would kind of be the way I would navigate. That's why I'm trying to coach lead pastors through right now is 
Yeah. I think also right now is a time where all of us, whether you're leading an organization or not, be what you're for. Don't be shaming what you're against. And I feel like when you see what Jesus is 33 years on this planet, you know, the way he led the majority of the time was what he was for. There was yeah. only certain instances where he's like, you brood of vipers, you know, or he yeah. just flipping over tables. The rest of the time he was just talking about what he was for. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, I'm, I'm for, I'm here for the sick. I'm here for the needy. I'm here for those that need a doctor. You know, I'm, I just what I'm here for, you know, like yeah. I think just being filled with grace and love. And I mean, I don't know if I'm quite all the way over my friend, Bob Goff, who's like just super love and fluffy, but I, 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 I don't want to be this guy over here throwing stones and being spiteful. Yeah. We had a great conversation sometime back with Jeff Henderson, who, who that's his book yeah, for, um, and, and had a great conversation around that very topic of knowing what you're for. Um, so you, our listeners can go back in season two. I think Jeff was it with us and listen to that. You said you're, you're meeting with, um, senior leaders. I've seen a lot of conversation. It, it's floating on social media. So the accuracy of it, I don't know. Um, but the, the expectation that out of the circumstance we're in, COVID, racial tensions, uh, financial pressures, that we're going to see an exodus of pastors um, because of the pressure they're under. What, would you, what, are you, what are you saying or what would you say to that group of pastors who feel overwhelmed right now um, to encourage them to kind of stay, stay the course? Yeah, I mean, some of the things that, you know, like – again, focus on what you can control. That's a big one. I mean, I think you're going to get so frustrated trying to, trying to control something. There are a few churches around the country that just decided, Hey, you guys are putting the expectation on me that I am, I'm going to assure your safety. I'm going to assure your safety. If you come into our building, you're going to be 100% safe. And they've just decided, you know what? I can't do that. So we're not meeting until 2021. (laughs) They just, they just said it, you know, like I can't do that. I think, um, Another one is maybe, perhaps, and this is, I don't want to assume because I don't know actually who I'm talking to right now, each individual, but perhaps in the Western world, we have put too much focus on a one-time gathering. Hmm. I'm not saying it's ever anything less than one day, but I would just suggest to everyone that we should put every day over one day and that we should be leading the folks to be church scattered, not gathered. Yeah. And so if everyone could be out now, it is a little bit depressing right now or disappointing, at least depressing is a little strong of those that have the evangelistic mindset of I'm not actually going to be attractional and, and that people would be saved every weekend in the house. I'm actually going to disciple so well that they'll go out and they will be evangelists, two different approaches. Mm-hmm. And it's not even a dichotomy. And sometimes it's a wash of a mix of both. Right. Right. But I was a little bit disappointed right now how little of that's happening. This whole, like, we visualize these troops going out and evangelizing. And what I'm seeing is the church in America actually hunkering down of like, oh, let's stay safe. Oh, our family. This is such great family time. This is so, there's time for that, yes. But I'm not seeing this mobilization of, like, we're going out and we're sharing so much grace and so much truth. So it's a little disappointing, not, not in church leaders as much but just the church in general of uh, just being a little bit weak during this time. Yeah. And that's an interesting thought. I mean, this whole preservation mindset, which I think is part of our natural human instinct is to make ourselves feel safe and comfortable. Right. That's if you look at Maslow's hierarchy, whatever, right. Safety is like the first thing. Yeah. But the point is, I, th- I think when you talk to a spiritual nature or a spiritual climate of the church in America, 
um, this preservation piece is almost paralyzing the church from doing what it's been called to do the whole time. And now that this, the, um, the rhythms that we're accustomed to have been kind of stripped uh-huh. away from us, we're not responding very well to, to the, to the change that's happened so quickly and so rapidly, which I think is in part due because we became a very performance there. I say, and again, we are always very, very careful how we criticize the church because we are massive local church fans, mm-hmm. but we've, we became and become a very performance driven there. I say entertainment interested body of believers who don't know how to evangelize Mm -hmm. the greatest discipleship need we have in America right now, I think is for secular saints. How do we actually disciple people to do the work of the, of the Lord inside of their context, in their businesses, in the, in the hospitals and wherever they are. Right. So I I love what Mm -hmm. you're saying here. And I, I mean, I really wish we could dig into that a little bit because as we approach younger leaders and we have conversations around campus with, students who have no idea how to live out their faith and live out their, their passion or their calling in, in whatever discipline that they're studying major that they're focusing on, you know, part of our challenge here is helping them understand, Hey, listen, churches is, is important. Like that's a part of your, of your calling. That's a part of your spiritual growth. And, and there's massive benefit in gathering together, but, but who you are in Christ is not defined by where you go on Sunday. Mm-hmm. It's how you it's how you prepare yourself for those opportunities. And you talked about preparation a little bit ago, because you never know when God's going to open the door for you to speak to someone. I I I firmly believe, I say all the time, every single day of your life, God will open the door for you to share his love with someone if you're open to it. Yeah. Every single day. So I I I wish we could just dig into this a little bit more. Maybe we can. I don't know how much time we got, but but this is a massive conversation that we need to have yeah. right now because of the condition and the state of the local church. So I don't know. Yeah, and I would I mean, love I to hear, like Chris, on, on I'd love to hear your thoughts on on how we even take a step toward that. Yeah, well, I do think it's uh, you know, Andy Stanley's known for saying it's attention to be managed. I don't think there's this. For instance, we're talking about the performance entertainment part of church, but I also think uh, to reach people where they're at, you know, I mean, Jesus actually went to the tax collector booth to get Matthew. Like he went to where he was at in the middle of his sin and between being a betrayer and being, being like, he went to where he was at. So I think you've got to be able to like mix in, you know, like I think you've got to, uh, just reading Atomic Habits, a great book, but it's talking about if you want to keep a habit going, what you want to do is you want to mix in some stuff that you want. Obviously I'm talking about with a biblically based of it's stuff that, that's not anti-biblical in this context, but right. things that you want with, and then you want to make sure that you mix in things that they need. So there's a little bit of what they want and a little bit of what they need. And so that you're going to get them to come every week until they're there spiritually, where they're coming there just for what they need. But the, the reality is you're trying to meet people where they're at. So that, but you also don't want to be breeding consumerism. So you've got both of these animals and it's attention to be managed. So I don't, I don't think it's fixed. You know, I think you just do the best you can. I do think we all need to put our cape away and uh, there's only one Messiah. And so I think we just do the best you can. It's like within what I, the biggest thing, my comment about the church today, and I'm not talking about leaders, I'm talking about the actual congregants is my, my biggest concern is that we are living a life that is led by fear from data 
rather than being spirit led. And we were told in Romans 12, one and two, to, to renew our minds. Like we are supposed to be a new creature, creation. And I feel like we are just as scared by data as those that don't have the Lord. And we are, we've been told we have hope and that we win in the end. And I feel like I'm just overall, I'm just, it's one thing to be careful and precautious, but nothing to be driven by fear and dripping yes. with fear. That's not what God wants for us. He said, I called you, I come to have you life and life to the full, not life fearful, curled up in a ball with your thumb in your mouth. Uh, I love that. Yeah. By the way, I'm not anti-lights and smoke. I'm actually very progressive. Pro I'm very progressive. Pro-lights and smoke. It, it, I'm pro-lights <laughs> and smoke, man. I'm like, I'm like all for it. I just, I, th- I think what you're, what you're hinting at and, and correctly, I mean, I think, I think it's, it's a, it's a, I don't want to say I hate the word balance, but it's it's an understanding of the purpose of of each perspective and how that how they apply. So yeah, one of the yeah. things we've said on the show lots is everybody wants to make something an or rather than an and. Yes, like yeah, like that. The holding things in tension is is the and. It's it's having a it's maybe the lights and the smoke or something something of attraction that people gravitate towards, and it's having the truth and the gospel and discipleship and evangelism right. and all the things. And holding those intention to be be effective, um, because we have to be effective in the kingdom of God. You can have no lights and smoke and be ineffective, or you can have lights and fo- smoke and be ineffective. Just because you have one or the other doesn't make exactly. you effective. Yeah. But the the tension of those things, the and I think, is really what we have to get to. Because in the end, it's really about expanding the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. It's not about building our own kingdoms. I, I like how you said we need to put our capes away because I think we all get the Superman complex a little bit sometimes and we're going to save the day, whatever the day is. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but our, our call is to go make disciples. And so we need to be effective in how we do that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think one of the, in, I love this concept you brought up of data. Um, literally an hour and a half before I came to the show, we, we had a faculty meeting today and it was largely driven by how do we address the culture with the students? We don't know how to address issues of racism in our classroom. We don't know how to address, uh, you know, all these other factors that are happening with COVID or whatever, right? So this idea of data, I think as believers, um, how are you helping encourage and train and teach and lead uh, and educate the people that you're working with on how to, how to use data, but not let data use you? How do you interpret data? How do you filter it well through Maybe a Christian worldview, a Christian perspective, yes, but um, because I mean, we kind of know like we can make metrics say what we want yeah. metrics to say because metrics are narratives, right? So, how do we use those things to our advantage? How do we see the data, understand the data, but also respond appropriately with with the data? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's just I, I think you have to be aware. I think it's also dangerous for believers to have their head in the sand and not know the data. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think it's actually dangerous to listen to the wrong, uh, wrong data that's spun. There's a lot of data that's being spun a certain way. So although like integrity wise, if you really had to nail it down, yes, it's accurate, but the way that it's expressed is expressed in a way that makes it seem either less intense or less problematic or more problematic than it actually really is. So I think having to pull up 30,000 feet and ask spirit, you know, be spirit led and say, okay, what does this data really mean? Let's take away all the words around it and all the way that it's been presented. Because I've just seen like, it might be a stat of 2.13%, but the words before it and after it make it feel like 21%. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Mm -hmm. And you're like, what in the world just happened? And so I think you've got to be really spirit led on what does this actually mean? And I think we've got to, if we're going to be leaders, like leaders of major organizations, we have to like really do the research, uh, whether it's actually, actually accurate. A good example of this non COVID related is this whole stat of 50% of uh, Christian marriage, marriages end in divorce. Yeah. We have thrown that around like crazy for 15 or 20 years. Yeah. If you go and peel back the layers, that research comes from nowhere. Not Barna, not Gallup. There is no hardcore evidence of that at all. There is one particular person named Shanti Felden who said, you know what, enough of this. And she dove in for nine months trying to find the real data and then did her own research. And it's actually only 25% of Christian marriages end in divorce. So you've got to really dive back and say, you know what, I, as if I'm going to relay numbers, I need to know what I'm talking about. Because here's the deal. The Bible says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. So if people think there's no hope, you stop trying. Yeah. And when you stop trying, there you go. you got this big, huge wave of, then it, you go into like, now you're not motivated. Now you're not tackling the next hill. Now you're not eating right. Next thing you know, you're, you're, you're not leading right. Next thing you know, you're not loving right. Next thing you know, you're disappointed in yourself. Next thing you know, you're pre-depression. Next thing you know, you're on meds. It's a big, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And I think we got to be really careful of any kind of metric that we relay as a leader. We need to know right. that's actually accurate and relay it within the, the proper context. But they're so sexy. I mean, just yeah. be able to throw out numbers like that. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It, it makes you sound sophisticated and, oh, yeah. and, and in tune and intelligent. I mean, metrics to, are sexy. To, to quote, to quote uh, Chris's former boss, 85% of all statistics are made up. So. <laughs> <laughs> I believe Dave Ramsey has said that a couple of times on his show. Well, uh, he's wrong. It's 83.7. Okay. Well, that too. Well, now we are corrected. So we'll let Dave know. So if he's ever on the show. So. You you mentioned marriages and I and 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 we won't say anything about your marriage because I let you talk about it. But you and Holly do host a podcast together. You do some marriage conferences together. Um, how important has being intentional about your marriage been to you as a leader? You know, we were just asked. Uh, well, first of all, anytime I go to lead in any capacity, whether it's to speak or whether it's to um, you know, consult or what, whatever it may be when I get on that plane or I get in the car and I go, there is a piece of me that is just not there. And I cannot be all in if I have even a 5% tension with my wife. Mm -hmm. So whether you're a female listening in or a male, uh, whether you're married or not, probably the same with a boyfriend or girlfriend, it literally takes half my brain away, half my heart away, my energy away if we're not right. So if you're asking yeah. that overall macro question, man, your relationship with your spouse is absolutely crucial. I think not only that, though, um, from a camaraderie standpoint, you think about what makes a great team a great team in sports. I, in my mind, I'm envisioning this ball team, this football team, running out of the locker room, and they're, like, all hitting the sign. You know, that those of you that play sports for you know, they all hit this sign of, like, come home with a W or some kind of alma mater thing or something on the wall that gets them all inspired. And there's this camaraderie of, like, man, we're just all in this together. And I think a lot of times husband and wife are just kind of living two different lives and they're kind of coexisting and they kind of have, and if they're in two different industries, it kind of gets a little bit hard to have that camaraderie. But we have realized that um, camaraderie is, uh, you have to really foster that. You have to really ask questions about their life and you've got to get involved. You got to know the people at their office. Um, you got to be able to feel the tensions that they're feeling. 
for us, man, camaraderie is one of the biggest things that uh, keeps us on the same page, keeps us jacked up, excited. Um, it's not just love. It's not just attraction. It's not just a co-parenting. It's this camaraderie of like, we're on the same page. We're in the battle together. We're building a legacy together. Um, so I, I think the biggest challenge for those of you that are married that are listening in, like how much camaraderie do you have? And it'd be really, this is a little bit of a warning. This is kind of a little bit off topic, but if you have camaraderie at work with somebody mm -hmm. of the opposite sex more than your spouse, beware. That is, that is a pre-affair. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Absolutely. That's good. Good warning. Yeah. So in that respect, then that, that brings up a boundaries question that I was going to ask because well, what happens a lot of times in ministry, especially, is those things melt together in such a capacity that it's hard to tell the difference when you're at home and when you're at work, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's so relationally driven and it's so, uh, you know, emotionally charging sometimes when you, when you start talking about ministry and marriage and they operate in the same circle. So how have you been able to sort of create or define those boundaries for your own personal relationship. And if you don't mind sharing maybe what some of those boundaries are, you know, what, what are some of those guardrails that you guys use to help keep those things in their appropriate spots? Yeah, this is unique for us. I mean, I'm not sure if there's some people listening in that uh, can relate to this, but my wife is also an executive pastor at a large church and she has been an executive pastor at several large churches as we've kind of moved around the country. Um, so she's always been a high-level, executive-level woman um, amidst a lot of high-level executive males with power. So for us, that is something, they're with power, they're with uh, influence. Um, right. mm -hmm. So for us, we've got some pretty strict, you know, boundaries. For instance, like her supervisor, which would be a lead pastor, you know, we just don't receive calls at, at night. Like uh, there's some things that like, if my supervisor were to call late at night and it's got a guy at 9 p.m., it's just, it's not abnormal. It's not weird, but I, we just have a boundary of like, she's not talking to dudes at night. And that's more of a boundary on her side. She doesn't feel comfortable talking to a, a guy at night. Like, you know, she might be like sitting on the couch talking to a guy on the phone, even if it's about work. I mean, obviously it would be about work, but it's just, we just, why? They can wait till the morning. It, there's no need for that. So that's kind of one, it's kind of different, kind of weird for us. Um, one is, this is one that pertains to everybody. Any big news in our life, anything that's like big or some kind of achievement, or I felt really good about something or it's internal, maybe it's external. We don't tell anyone about it until we've told our spouse. They're the first one that gets to know. Like that's the worst. Whenever someone says, then they come, they tell your spouse, man, I'm so excited. What happened to Jim today? What happened to Jim? Oh, and they're finding out after the fact that like five right, people right. know. And it's like, it was a major deal. Like we love to tell each other, be the first one to know, you know, and then you can tell other people. Um, that's another one. Um, we try to travel together as much as we can, you know, um, and it, we both travel a lot. So, you know, taking kids with us is a big, big thing for us. Um, we try to not schedule a lot when we come back in town the day after, you know, so that we can really reconnect. Um, I don't know, some of those kind of things. Uh, obviously, the easy ones, like she doesn't travel with the opposite sex, you know, in a car or right. plane or anywhere like that. Um, doesn't go to restaurants. Any kind of meeting she has with the, other, with the other gender, she has the door cracked. Some of that's annoying. It's like, why do I have to do that stuff and you don't? <laughs> you know, because I'm dealing with a lot of men. And uh, my God, it's just, you know, she's, she's more frustrated. I don't put that on her, but she's frustrated that she has to. 
but yeah. but she she doesn't she likes that the perception of knowing that she's above above approach and that she's not yeah. allowing the devil to get in there. So that's just, good, that's just good common sense stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's helpful. Yes. So what led you guys to start a podcast together? I mean, you're doing ministry, you're doing parenting, you're married. So, so why the podcast? Well, you know, it goes back to that highest and best value. I feel like one of my gifts, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm an average communicator on a platform. Occasionally I can have Chris, moments. You're more than average. Come on. I'm going to, I'm going to say you're more than average. Come on. Thank you. I, I have some, some moments of, of, of better than average, but I, at the end of the day, I'm average, but anyway, um, but on the rate, I feel like I, I can really minister through a microphone. I feel like I've, 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 I've gotten a lot of good feedback from valuable minds in my life uh, and voices in my life that have just called out that gift in me. So I feel like my highest and best use to the kingdom is for me to do it. One of the biggest things for values in my life too is to be home more often. So the more I do the podcast better, the less I'm on a plane. Um, and I feel like it's a really um, wise use of resources and technology for me to be able to uh, bypass brick and mortar and I could pastor somebody without brick and mortar and without a staff and without all the expenses of a church. But I could, I could literally minister to tens of thousands through a microphone and just turn it on and start talking. And um, Holly and I just have a lot of thoughts, a lot of like thoughts that God has kind of dropped in our spirit. And I'm like, well, that wasn't just for us. That was for other people. And then of course, doing it together is that camaraderie piece of like, and, by the, and some of it is just like, you know what? She's 15 times sharper than I am. So I've got the, I've got the radio acumen and the thousands and thousands of hours and hundreds of episodes. She doesn't have that. So I can kind of handle all the radio parts. Right. And then I can just right. throw her a softball and she can deliver all the brilliance. And then I just, I'm just kind of like the host. <laughs> yeah, cool. I, what I, what I've learned is, is the Lord wastes nothing. Um, I think I've said it on the show before my, I spent two years out of state college before coming to Lee and doing undergraduate work where Rob and I met. Um, but worked at the college radio station for, I think about a semester and a half. Like I was going to do sports broadcasting and this was 20, many years ago. We'll say many years ago <laughs> and, and so never thought that that would come back to life in my life, you know? And so here we are now hosting a podcast and I'm like, God really doesn't waste anything. He just retools it sometimes for yeah. his kingdom or for his purposes. So oh. it sounds like that's what he's done with, with you and Holly. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're big into just, we love to restore. That's the whole idea why we bought this farm, you know, Milltown Farm in Tennessee. Just, we love to restore things. And so far we came here to this farm, this old 200 year old farm to, to restore it and to bring it back. And so uh, the name of the podcast is There Is More. And the whole idea is like, wherever somebody's at, we would want you to know that, uh, you know, God wants to restore that. And what you're saying is nothing's wasted. We agree with that. Like we agree that nothing's wasted. We've got some healing that we're still doing from some pain in our lives. We've lost three parents. We've had a miscarriage. I had a lot of, I had a lot of violence in the home. I had, a, you know, several divorces and lots of poverty. And so for me, I'm like, no, I'm going to leverage all that to see if I can minister to people. Mm -hmm. That's, That's good, good, bro. That's good, man. It has been such a joy to have you on yeah. the show. I wish we had another hour, but we do want to ask you one final question that we ask all of our guests uh, on the show. And so, uh, the, the question is this, what, what is one lesson you learned in college that uh, did not take place in the classroom? <laughs> well, this is uh, funny you asked that because I actually just here at the Vibe a couple cabins here on the farm and uh, I just had a surprise visit from a fellow 
college baseball player on my team that I haven't seen in 22 years. Oh, so the last three or four days, we've been reminiscing about college. And I oh. do that. So I have all these fresh stories. I, I would say the first thing is, is, is uh, Yoko, okay? Not you only live once, you only college once. So this may seem a little bit uh, off. This may seem like, you, you, this may take you by surprise. It doesn't sound like a real biblical answer and a real like prophetic <laughs> pastoral answer, but man, enjoy it. Live yeah, it up yeah. with, within, within, within the restrictions of your authorities. Like, right. like last night, I, I got home at one in the morning from a, a flight to, from Chicago and I came home. I just love my son for this. My 14 year old son, he stayed up for me, which is really sweet, but he knew that I had no chance to go to the gym yesterday. So I was going to go to the gym at 1am. He stayed up for me. I'm like, and he goes, can I go to the gym with you? I'm like, honey, you got to get up at 630 in the morning and go to school. You're only going to get five and a half hours of sleep. And he's like, oh, three and a half, four and a half. Cause we were up there for an hour. And he's like, dad, you know, I, you know, I, yeah, I want to be tired, but this is going to, this is going to be an experience. Like we're going to, like, we're going to bond. And like, he's like this, you only live once. And like, I just love that. Like, yeah, yeah. he's going to be tired today. He's got the weekend to sleep. Like, He's going to have an experience like, man, live college. Like, man, if you got a chance yeah. to go like on a three day trip on Saturday, Sunday, Monday, or Friday and go to like drive to Maine, just experience Maine and then drive back. Or now those of you in California are like, what? That doesn't make no sense, but you get the point. Like do some <laughs> stuff, just, just live. So that's one. And I know that's a little bit more lighthearted, but what I also noticed with this gentleman that I met with uh, last couple of days um, is we laughed at ourselves for hours of how much we thought that we knew yeah, and how right. much we thought we were awesome. And we look back now and we're like, we are the biggest idiots. Like we had no clue. And I would just say those of you who are in college right now, like you just be humble. Like I know you're on the top of the cool chart. Like you're cooler than all of us, but just trust me, you don't know like as much as you think you do you just and right now i don't know as much as i i'm gonna look back 20 years from now and be like right now the 40 year old chris is like dude you had no clue just yeah. Yeah. be humble that your 30 year old self is gonna laugh at yourself like you're, you're gonna laugh yeah at your you're, you're just gonna, you don't know it so just be humble 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 so that was not from the classroom that was just just from this week looking back i'm like oh snap yeah we were cocky <laughs> yeah, and Jeff and I laugh about that all the time. Oh my goodness. Man, let me tell you something. We had theology figured out. All of it. We had church growth figured out. All of it. Never planted a church. Never worked in a never church. Never worked in a church. <laughs> we didn't have a pastor figure out, never pastored anybody. <laughs> we were gonna tell everybody how to do it. That's exactly right. Exactly, exactly. Well, we have a podcast now asking guys like you questions because 20 years later we go, we still don't know how to do it. Please help us. We're really dumb. Okay. <laughs> Chris, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, I'm going to recommend to all of our college listeners to turn this in as homework and yeah. see if you can get three credit hours for a leadership class. That's right. This has been a download of, of leadership insight and information that, that you're going to want to back. Run it back, listen to it, take notes. I have a page of notes. I'll probably go back and listen to it even before we release it. Um, it's been that good. Um, and we are so grateful to have you on the show. And as we always say here at the Leadership Drip, the new name, the leadership yeah, drip. It. Let it roll off the tongue. You have a seat at the table. Thanks for being on the show, man. Yes, an honor. Thank you, guys. Hey, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Leadership Drip. We loved having you at the table for this conversation. Would you do us a favor and comment, rate, subscribe, and share on your social media? That way we can get this content to other great leaders. 
And stay connected with us on Instagram at The Leadership Drip and on Twitter at Leadership Drip. And remember, you have a seat at the table.